Hello, and welcome to Beyond Consulting, brought to you by ECA Partners, the only podcast dedicated to helping you navigate your life after a career in consulting. I'm Ken Canera, host of Beyond Consulting and CEO of ECA Partners, a specialized project staffing and executive search firm focused on former management consultants and private equity. Each week, I host guests that have spent time in consulting and made some sort of pivot or career change after consulting. The goal is to help our audience understand all the options that they have available to them and ideally learn from our guests, both in terms of what they did right and things they wish they would have done differently. Today, we welcome Anjali to the studio. Hi, Anjali. Welcome. Thank you, Ken. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Um, I will uh, start off by telling uh, your listeners a little bit about myself, um, if that works. Yeah, no, that's I, you beat you beat me to it. I was just I was just about to I was just about to say we I think we've known each other for for longer than we'd like to admit. But why don't why don't you kind of start out and just give us a little bit of background? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Anjali Nakuda. I um, I'm currently in Chicago, and I am the VP of Marketing and Product Management at a company called Vescom, which provides tech-enabled services to the retail and CPG industries. Um, but that is what I like to call Chapter Three of my career. Um, chapter Two being my post MBA career, which was consulting and a number of strategy roles, and then um, Chapter One being my first uh, stint in the workforce after undergrad, which was in finance. Um, and then I think, Ken, you and I talked, uh, gosh, we're just talking about this, right? I think we first connected, I had 10, 12 years ago or so. It's, it's been a while more, more than I, more than I'm willing to admit the, uh, and you and, and our, for our listeners, they'll, they'll know that the thing that I'll want to talk about is, is, is when you worked at Beachbody. Um, but I will, uh, I won't start there. I promise. Um, so I, so first I, I kind of want to dive into kind of Vescom, um, and first of all, you know, what is Vescom and kind of like, what do you do? Um, for, for, for Vescom. Yeah. So Vescom, you know, I like to, you know, as, as head of marketing, I, I always think about, um, you know, the, the brand positioning of Vescom, but honestly, the easiest way to describe what we do is to deviate from that. And we make essentially the price tags and all the price communication that you see in major grocery stores, drugstores, other specialty retail retailers. Um, but what not everyone knows is that the process of getting to a final price is really complicated. So you take something, someone like Kroger that has 2,700 stores, each one of the 2,700 stores might have a different price for certain items or dozens or hundreds or thousands of items. And guess what? They change those prices every week. Um, and so there's a lot of data integration that is involved. And that's essentially what Vescom does is integrates all of that data and then prints that price communication for stores and then delivers it just in time every single week. On top of that, we also sell media on um, on those tags. So if you ever see a picture of Diet Pepsi on the price tag or some messaging around it being gluten-free, um, that likely comes from uh, media that we are selling um, and working with CPGs and then rub sharing back with retailers. So that's incredible. So across all, all, all different retailers, across all different locations, and then across hundreds of thousands of SKUs. Exactly. Exactly. So, okay. So we're talking about millions, billions, and potent, not probably not trillions, but billions of, 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 of different price, discrete prices. Exactly. Exactly. That's incredible. Okay. So if, if, if I'm walking through the aisle at, 
you know, a, a Kroger and I look down and I see the little price tag, that's more than likely from you guys. More than likely than from us. And that incorporates things like the, um, if there's a sale, like the promotional information, what different types of products might be included in that promotion. So, you know, buy five, save $5, that type of thing. Um, and then even the coolest thing that we're, we're doing recently is QR codes. So you can actually scan the QR code and it links you back to um, Kroger's site where you can actually download or clip the digital coupon. Um, we also work with folks like Pinterest. So if you walk through an Albertsons or a Jewel Osco or Safeway store, you can actually see Pinterest tags where you might get recipe inspiration, uh, for example. Oh, so not just pricing, but some sort of other kind of QR tag that then you open a link and then there's content related to that particular SKU. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, exactly. That, exactly. The, the thing that continues to surprise me about let's call it jobs after consulting is the just the 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 sheer number of random industries that are out there that you would have never guessed and this is totally one of them how did you get involved with vescom yeah so um there's kind of a long history that i have with vescom but honestly it was through um a recruiting firm so i was looking for my next opportunity um a firm had introduced me to vescom and for me, I was looking for um, a company of Vescom size, which is, you know, under $500 million. Um, I was looking, you know, quite honestly, under $2 billion. And so Vescom around $500 million fit the mark. Um, and I was also looking for companies that had some relationship to retail or CPG because I'd spent so much of my consulting career and then post-consulting adjacent to those industries. So I felt like a lot of my knowledge base was there. And then just by chance and, you know, that networking, um, you know, came across this opportunity with marketing. And, you know, as I'm sure many of your listeners know that when you're in those strategy roles, um, you are dangerous in a lot of different areas, right? B2B marketing, product management, you know, go-to-market strategy um, that can be parlayed in a lot of ways. Um, so while on paper, it sometimes looks like a leap, um, it really felt like an extension of some of the things I'd already been spending time on in my time at IRI, uh, which was right before that. And you lead product management as well as well as marketing, correct? That's right. Okay, so kind of break that down, especially the product management piece, because I think that's a word that's thrown out a lot and it has a lot of different meetings. Um, I guess in, in kind of your context, what does product management mean? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give a little bit of context of how this came about. You know, when I first joined Vescon, and this is another reason I love these um, smaller companies, because they tend to hire folks um, at a certain stage that are just hungry and interested and curious. And if you have a great idea um, and you can make a case for it, um, you're given some investment and some time to try things out. So when I joined, my remit really was on the marketing side company had grown, it was time to take, to really professionalize marketing um, and be a little more proactive on the marketing side to support the, that next wave of Vescom growth. But with product management, I had one person um, that I inherited that was writing some release notes for one of our software portals. And that was about the extent of product management at Vescom. And as I sat down and I looked at the big, hairy, scary three-year growth plan, um, it became increasingly clear that we weren't going to be able to hit that without actually having more formal product management. And really what this team does, because it is in its infancy, so, you know, really 
comes back to kind of classic consulting of, you know, you, you lay out the strategy, you, you talk about the costs, you figure out the test and learn strategy and you gain alignment, right? And you, you find um, a bunch of supporters and then all of a sudden um, you're given that green light to go give it a try. Then, yeah, oh, oh shit, it's real. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And then, and then, yes, and then you can't sleep at night, but, <laughs> um, but you know, really this team, um, what they're focused on is um, a set of our products. So we're not biting off all of the products today, but really they are focused on thinking about the product roadmaps. So what are the features and capabilities that we need to add to our existing product lines so that they remain relevant in the market, right? And so that we're not just responding because a client asks for it, but that we actually have a proactive view of how the industry and client needs are changing. And then therefore, what do we have to build, develop, or buy um, to make sure that our products remain relevant and sticky? So that's the primary role of this team. But of course, there are all sorts of other things um, having to do with training of the sales force and the organization, making sure um, that we have guardrails and boundaries with our product portfolio so that different products don't bleed into one another. Um, and they also play a big role on the innovation side. So, you know, whenever there is a brand new product, it doesn't sit, it sits with our innovation team, but product helps with the scoring, with understanding some of that feature functionality that's needed, um, and then commercializing the product. Very cool. And in a technology context, so if you think about like a software developer, the product manager has a has a similar role, but is is very much involved with call it the building and the development. Is the same true for your industry as well, or not so much? You mentioned an innovation team, that's why I ask. Yeah, it's not so much on the product development side, right? It is, but it is more laying out the requirements that we need, whether it's existing products or future products or you know new products, um, and laying those out in a way that can be interpreted by our IT and our solutions team that actually develop the products and create the prototypes. And we do have, by the way, both technology products as well as uh, physical products. Okay. And and so that makes sense. So then in, in your industry, what would you say the, the benefits are? So it sounds like you drove a lot of professionalization and standardization and process around and strategy around the product management function. What, what are some of like the benefits that, that you would see in the long term for that? Yeah. I mean, so fundamentally, it is having a strategy related to the products. Right. I think that a lot of times, um, if you think about some of the history of Vescom, and I think this is typical of companies um, that are Vescom size, where you kind of um, you, you, a client might ask for an additional feature or a capability. You build it. You think, maybe I'll try to scale it. You invest a lot and maybe it scales. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it was architected too specifically for one client so that you can actually never scale it. Right. And if you don't have a team that's on the ground dedicated, and really deeply embedded with the clients, thinking about scale from the get-go. Um, I think it's a bit of a game of chance if, um, you know, if that product's actually going to achieve revenue targets. Um, and I think the other piece of it, too, is um, the piece that's really connected to client needs. I think it's very easy for a client to say, I need this functionality in a software portal or the physical product. Um, and it's very easy to literally go create it and scale it. And it's a small idea. But if you can actually get to the underlying needs, what is the client actually asking for? Are they asking for a tag that is already um, 
perforated versus what they want is actually something that's faster, right? There's a big difference between what problem you're solving for. If you have a product team that digs deeper into the client needs, then you're actually solving for their underlying need because you have a team that's dedicated, that has the bandwidth to uncover it versus, all right, let's just create what they want and move on because my day job is not, you know, I don't have that bandwidth to go and dig in for, you know, hours with the client to understand the needs. I think that's the other benefit that the team brings. And that, and that makes a ton of sense. And, and actually some parallels to building software too, because it's kind of like, okay, well, what's the job to be done, right? So often people, it's our tendency to go, oh, it should have this and this it, it, because at the end of the day, we're all consumers, right? And so um, we, we can't help but go there. Um, okay, but that's really cool. I um, I guess the other thing kind of to talk about is you you also lead marketing. Um, and, I, and it's my understanding you led a brand refresh as well. Talk to me about kind of what that means in in kind of a, a very B2B context. Yeah, absolutely. So if I think about, you know, what is our mandate with marketing and how do we organize our work? There are a couple of big buckets. Um, and, you know, we, we don't often use the word brand building. We are... Um, I think about we are a very commercially led company, and I think that sometimes the marketing speak, you know, doesn't really land in the same way it might at a, you know, a true consumer goods company, right? So we don't often talk about things like brand building, though, of course, that's a lot of what we do. Really, the way we talk about it is one is sales enablement. So how can, what are the things that marketing can do? to really um, accelerate um, and enable the success of the sales team. And that could be in-year or multi-year. So that would be everything from you know, developing collateral, um, thinking about how do we articulate the value proposition in a way that resonates? How do we think about clients, client personas, um, and their underlying needs so that we are, again, crafting that narrative in a way um, that clients can understand the value very, very quickly. Um, and so that is all the sales enablement piece. Um, and then the other side, which is maybe more of, you know, that traditional brand building is the thought leadership end, right? And this is all about the perceptions of Vescom in the marketplace. We started off um, as, and we've, we all had data integration at our core, but we very much were known for many years as a tag company. And part of my remit is to change those perceptions. So that people understand the, you know, the terabytes and, you know, upon terabytes of data that we manage, the complexity that we manage. We, we print things, for example, in planogram order. So we're taking the planogram of all 65,000, 70,000 retail stores, right, and integrating it in. Um, and so if I think about all of that and the perceptions we want to land, we, we are a thought leader. We, we consider ourselves shelf edge experts. And it's how do we make sure that the marketplace recognizes that? That is everything from content marketing um, to, you know, our industry and conference strategy to, um, you know, owned and paid media um, and probably a million other things that I could uh, go on for another hour um, describing. <laughs> and then the third tranche, which is actually really important, um, though maybe not as glamorous, is the internal communication side. And really making sure that our all of our team members are engaged, informed, um, and you know, uh, really rooted in what our values, our value proposition. So we're all marching in the same direction. And how do you think about? So I, I, I get that that's very intelligent in terms of kind of like how you're approaching it and how you're picking it up. But I get, I guess, in a business like yours, how do you quantify 
the results of becoming the shelf edge experts. How do you think about that? It's yeah. And so I would say like the hard thing for us at this stage of where we are is the attribution piece. And it will get it will change as we get uh, more sophisticated on board a new CRM. Um, so there is a bit of a data gap, which me as a former consultant, um, it's, you know, it, it, it has me vibrating, of course. Um, but we also just see it in our everyday conversations. It is incredible when you think about um, reframing a discussion, when it's not just here's our menu board of products, what do you want? But when we come into conversations demonstrating a deep understanding of the industry, we have a deep understanding of the complexity of retail. Um, we have a deep understanding of the client across from us. Um, and then we, we get that not just from the things that we read and digest, but because we get to see retailers across the spectrum, right? We work with almost all the major grocery um, and drug retailers in the U.S., right? And that perspective is valuable um, to folks, but then also specialty retail. And so we can bring in ideas and thoughts from um, all sorts of places um, when we come to our clients. Um, and so that has been incredibly valuable. But then you see, you see that payback not only in you know pure revenue coming out of those conversations, but also in what our clients reach out to us for, right? Because they will sometimes they they treat us sometimes as almost consultants, right? They come and they ask us about their strategies having to do with the shelf edge. Um, once they realize that shelf edge can be an enabler for their overall company priorities. That's uh, so. I mean, is it fair to say that there's a, a tremendous amount of solution selling that goes on in your space now than, say, two decades ago? Absolutely. And solution is the exact way to put it, right? It isn't a singular product, but it is solution. Okay. Because if, if I'm a. If I'm a drug store or pharmacy, I, I, ha- I have different challenges than. Um, you know, a grocery store or something like that. I, I I don't know what the hell they are, but um, but I would imagine that that I would, and I I have I have very different problems to solve as it relates to kind of like, uh, you know, managing and pricing my SKUs. Yeah, and it's not just even like, right like the managing and pricing, but if you think about the world of retail and how competitive it's gotten, you have so many more channels, right? As a shopper, so many different options from online to um, in store, and right like you can buy everything on Amazon now, um, or you can go to Whole Foods and still get your you know kind of health and beauty products, or you can choose a typical Kroger or any of the drugstores, and you know one up one off brands like Billy that are direct consumer. So if you think about the world of options, um, you know, what all retailers are thinking about is how do I um, maintain this position as the retailer of choice for um, my shopper when they have a world of options to choose from. Right? And so, you know, a lot of what we do now, well, you know, historically we're a tag company, a lot of what we're doing now has shifted to thinking about how do we create a seamless shopper experience as they think about the digital channel so that when you go to Walgreens online, um, that experience with you in store um, still feels seamless. It still feels like the same Walgreens because guess what? A Walgreens shopper uses both channels. A Kroger shopper uses both of those channels, right? And, and there's always Amazon as that option that you've got to think about, oh, I've got to be as easy and seamless as these other, other options out there. No, and that's that's such a uh, fun, challenging, and uh, 
interesting problem to, to solve, to, to think about it from that perspective. It's, it's so, you know, I mean, the amount of data that you need to, to get it right, uh, I think speaks to a, a lot of kind of the, the value that you guys are driving. Um, and, and, and kudos to you um, in terms of kind of driving the results that you did um, over the past couple of years. Um, I, I kind of want to rewind the clock a little bit. Um, so, Okay, before Vescom, you were at IRI and Beachbody, um, and I, you know, you, you did a lot of work um, across kind of like M and A valuation. You did pricing strategy, you did product launch. To, I, I guess first, I guess maybe start with IRI and kind of like what you did there, and and and, and I'm really curious to hear also kind of like how consulting framed kind of like your your career from at IRI and Beachbody. I'll start with the consulting piece um, because it's a little bit foundational and then I'll, I'll, tell, I'll dig into IRI a little bit. But when I think about consulting, um, I think that the toolkit was invaluable. This idea of being comfortable with ambiguity, being able to take things that are complex and make them simple, right? Boil the, you know, break it down so that you can analyze it or use logic to, to attack these problems. Um, and that's been with me my entire career, you know, and I'm, I'm really grateful for that experience that I had, you know, all of the, the skills and, you, you know, looking at big data sets and um, finding the patterns and themes and drawing out insights. Um, so when I think about uh, my IRI time, um, there were two different roles um, that were quite different at IRI. So the first one was really corporate strategy at the center, working closely with uh, the CEO and the leadership team. And um, a lot of what I worked on, there were things around IRI's valuation, around IRI's five-year um, strategic plan and valuate, valuing the different um, business cases that they had or creating business cases right for the various initiatives, um, as well as tracking and developing metrics. Um, a lot of work with the board of directors as well, thinking about how do we tell the overall VESCOM story, our progress, where are there gaps that the board can help with? Um, and it was such a great seat to be in because when you're partnering with the CEO on creating his letter to um, the board, you have to know a little bit about everything happening within the company, right? And so it's such a great, you know, kind of perch to be, you know, to be sitting on um, because while you might not be deep in anything in particular, you get that holistic view of, of you know, the, the entirety of the company. Um, and then after a while, you know, a few years of that, I parachuted into one of our businesses, which was our media business. And it was a startup business within larger IRI, had a, um, a legacy product, and we were purchasing loyalty data from retailers like Kroger um, and launching media products from there. So things around like audience measurement and, um, you know, understanding um, the impact of buying, for example, if you serve up a digital ad to you can, do you actually go purchase in store or not? You can actually take that lo loyalty data, marry it with digital data, right? <laughs> I will definitely purchase in store. I, 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 I need things now. So I, I, I'm like, I'm the worst consumer ever when it comes to, when it comes to this. But, you know, I mean, it's like, if you get sort of that impression and that, that digital ad, right. You know, IRI can measure whether you make that purchase online, whether you make that purchase in store, uh, which is pretty wild. And obviously not down to the individual level. It's all 
sanitized data. Um, but you can imagine increasingly um, important kinds of measurement when you're, you think about the CPG world, right, and um, how they invest their brand dollars. And so really my role there um, was, you know, I kind of played this mix of head of strategy, chief of staff and COO to the president of the media business. So this is everything from partnerships to thinking about a go to market strategy um, in Europe to analyzing impact of privacy laws on what we were doing, um, you know, managing the budget working with the teams to make sure that we had the right staffing models and, you know, it's it's things strategic and tactical and everything uh, in between, which is, you know, vastly different, you know, than, than where I'd been before at IRI. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and that, that first role you mentioned at IRI, was that, so I've heard, I've, I've heard a lot about like consultants going, former consultants going into that. Is that, was that kind of like a chief of staff role almost? Uh, the, the word's thrown around a lot, but it, 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 it was essentially that. It was. It was a combo of chief of staff plus, um, you know, kind of SWAT team, right? Diving in to select projects to give them strategic support for projects or initiatives across the company. Okay. No, that, that's, that, that makes sense. And, and both IRI, correct me if I'm wrong, but both IRI and Vescom were private equity backed. Is that correct? So what, I mean, so what did that mean in terms of the the pace of work for you? Because most people leave consulting to get to slow down. (laughs) Yeah, I will say that the pace is different than consulting, for sure. Um, You know, and I I will say being part of strategy teams, and it also might be my wiring um, as well, because I feel it even today, um, I think that while sometimes the pace is dictated to you, I think some of it is inherent to who you are and the things that you are trying to accomplish. And of course, the wrinkle being there are certain times in a private equity owned company that um, that are going to you know, increase the number of uh, times you see midnight while you're while you're on your laptop. Right. And so if you think about right, the valuation times when we are, you know, when there's a due diligence period. Right. Of course, those are all hands on deck. Um, and those are, you know, whatever hours um, working directly for a CEO can be that way as well. Right. Because you want to be responsive and it, it typically are the things that are critical to the organization. Um, but I would still say the pace is, is quite different, you know. What Anjali is saying is that she's a glutton for punishment. I, 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 she, that was a long-winded way of saying she likes pain. So then before IRI, and um, uh, which is really where I, I want to talk about Beachbody, because, I mean, what, what, a cool, what a cool company. Was, that, was Beachbody private equity backed as well? No. So Beachbody, they took on a private equity investment while I was there, which is a really fun thing to see. If you can believe it. So at the time I joined about 700 million um, in revenue, mainly off the back of P90X and um, almost entirely founder owned. So it was owned by um, Carl Deichler and John Condon, who were CEO and president. Um, with maybe a little bit of um, of the company owned by various other investors and um, you know leadership team members, but minuscule amounts, which is incredible. And Beachbody, so so P, so you mentioned P ninety X. So Beachbody was essentially, if I'm not mistaken, kind of a portfolio of different kind of exercise related brands and and t- tutorials. Is that am I summing it up right? 
Yeah. I mean, it was at home fitness. And if, you know, I mean, it sounds antiquated now and obviously the model has evolved, but it was DVDs, right? Infomercial, direct to consumer, right? Those late night DVDs um, that they send you um, in the mail. And the other side of the business, which not everyone, some people know about, not everyone knows about, is network marketing. So it, it is a program where you are a Beachbody coach, you get a discount on the products, you make sales to folks, and then you, you earn commission on it. Right. So independent coaches, um, which, by the way, sometimes people say, oh, it's a pyramid scheme. This one was not at all. It was actually pretty genius. Right? If they think about why Carl Zeichler found a Beachbody, it wasn't that he was an exercise junkie. It was just that people are always going, going to want to get into better shape. When you look at the standard American diet, you look at folks, everyone is always going to be interested in it. So it's going to be whether the economy is good, economy is bad. This is going to be a business in demand. The second piece of it is. If you have someone who has lost 50 pounds on beach using Beachbody products, everyone is going to see them, at least in the pre-pandemic world, right? You go into the office and everyone says, what'd you do? How'd you lose all this weight? And then you can very authentically talk about Beachbody. Well, shouldn't you also then be selling Beachbody? And that was really the idea behind the network marketing arm. Yeah, no, it, it and it's quite an incredible thing to think about. And I've really, I've actually never thought about it from that paradigm. It, you're absolutely right. No matter how, no matter what level of fitness you are, you're not, you're not done yet. Right. <laughs> and, and, uh, I can't even tell you how many people I've, I've asked, Oh, like, how did you get OP 90 X? Right. And, uh, that that's really cool. What, um, what drew you from, okay. So one of the things that our listeners are particularly interested in, they're at this stage where they're still in consulting, and they're about to kind of like make a leap. So talk to us about kind of like how you you made the decision to leave and kind of like what drew you to Beachbody? You know, I actually thought about leaving consulting before I ended up doing it. And, you know, really, I think I was a little burnt out on the number of hours, which is not necessarily the right reason, at least for me, to, to leave. Um, and I was convinced to stay. I'm really glad I did. Um, so got more reps in as a project leader, um, which I loved. But for me, fundamentally, there's this bit of a disconnect because you go and you recommend strategies when you're in that kind of project leader phase, um, but you don't have a client relationship, or at least you feel, at least I didn't feel like I could follow up with a client to understand what worked or didn't work um, because I felt like the relationship was owned by others. And I just move on to the next project. And I was, honestly, the pace doesn't allow you to stop and say, hey, whatever happens with this client. And so I felt like I was recommending things without that understanding or knowledge of, well, if I take a step back, did any of this work? What did they implement? What didn't they implement? And why didn't they implement it? Right. And it felt like there was just this big gap in my learning of you know, how do you get to things that are practical and real? How do you have to pivot and readjust halfway through if the strategy isn't working? Um, and so I didn't feel like I was getting that um, at the time at BCG. And so I felt like, hey, you know, I've I've enjoyed my time. I've learned a ton. Not sure that more years of, again, you know, project leader to principal feels more or less the same role, maybe slightly bigger teams. Um, so it felt like a good time to actually go test the waters and see that other side of what happens when you implement and, you know, strategy actually meets reality. And did you, so you, you've obviously worked with a tremendous amount of middle market companies now uh, successfully, uh, private equity back. What, um, I guess when you were working at BCG, was your client base, did, it, did that look the same or was it, was it, I'm guessing, bigger corporate 
types, Fortune 500s? Yeah, Fortune 100 CPGs. Okay. Was the vast majority of my time at BCG. And was that, I mean, was that part of the equation or you honestly hadn't thought about client size or anything like that? The client size, you know, I loved working for the big clients when I was at BCG, especially since if we are going to be retained, it's generally a very high strategy, critical to the organization project. You get to work with quite senior folks um, on the client side. What I didn't want to do, though, is leave consulting and feel very buried in an organization. Right. I was used to being able to have influence on, you know, kind of the overall company. And I felt like coming out at that point in my career, if I went to a, you know, Fortune 100 size company, um, I would be so far removed from um, where the decisions were being made, um, let alone having any influence on those decisions, right? And having a voice. Um, And so I really felt like, you know, going to a smaller company, especially, you know, I love those companies that are at that tipping point of, are they've grown like gangbusters, but really they're going to have to make changes to get to that next wave of growth. And a lot of times that's professionalizing the operations, not with, you know, all respect to all the history and all the folks that came before, but at some point you reach that period of growth where formal strategy makes sense, right? Or, um, you know, or folks with uh, more depth of experience in certain areas. And where did you feel like consulting, you, you, you were at BCG, where do you, where do you feel like that really kind of prepared you for what was next? And where do you feel like, oh my God, I had no clue. <laughs> like, where, you know, where, where were you, where were you green that you just, you didn't know what you didn't know? Well, you know, I think I've, I've touched upon a couple of those things on how I was prepared, right? Of, you know, that idea of being able to leverage frameworks, of being able to take something ambiguous, not be scared of it. Um, and take the ambiguous plus complex, right, and break it down, right, in a, in a um, strategic way um, to kind of ask the right questions that help us frame up strategies and paths forward. So I felt like I had that piece of it. The piece that I that I think was underdeveloped was some of the people um, side of things. And what I mean by that is when you're at a BCG and you're working with a client, the client spends seven figures to engage you. So guess what? Everyone on the client side, they're pushing aside their day job. They are invested in this project because their boss's boss's boss has said so, right? And so you've got this automatic buy-in and speed that you don't have when you yourself are um, bringing forward strategies and you're trying to get alignment and buy-in. Um, and so you really have to flex that influence muscle more than you have to in consulting, right? And find those ways to get people passionate, excited, backing an idea um, so that you get that momentum. Um, so I think that's one huge part of it. Um, I think the other piece, and I will say I, I still work on developing this. When I was a consultant, I felt like I had to know the answer to everything a client might ask. Right. And I felt like it had to be perfect. They're spending this much money on us. Right. So I'd go and I'd present and fingers crossed, please don't find fault in this because I might not know the answer um, and try to push it through. And I've realized that my stance on the other side of things um, has to be a lot different. You know, I have actually gotten to the point where I invite conflict. Don't tell me what's great about this. Tell me where there are holes because I need to know now, right? Because what I'm searching for is not that you pass through my work and I'm happy and you're happy and then I get to move on to the next case. But instead, I'm looking for the solutions that are actually going to work. And um, I'm going to be there, by the way, for the fallout if it doesn't work. So I need to know the roadblocks, why you're not bought in. I need folks to speak up. I need that conflict now 
versus after, you know, I implemented and then you tell me why, why, why it was going to fall apart as it's falling apart. Right. And it's, it's a much different posture. Yeah. And it's funny that, so that, that second piece, right? Like sometimes I, I worry that I couldn't go back to consulting because like, like, okay, sometimes you need to make a slide with a list of five priorities and, and, and you know, like one and two are really the only ones that matter than the, the other three are like, eh, eh. and like, I don't know that I could go back and make that slide anymore. Just knowing, like kind of having been on the other side. Uh, so that's a really good point. But I also feel like in some ways, um, the clients might love it right? Of that kind of like open, frank, and I've seen it, right? You're coming from a place of experience. I know. That's, that's very true. And, and on the first point around kind of buy-in too, I mean, we, we even, we even see that with, uh, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a misperception that I guess like the importance of like a project. And so like, I'll give an example, like we even see this like with uh, CEOs of private equity companies, right? It's like, they need buy-in. They need buy-in from their investors. They need buy-in from their team, right? And it's 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 when you're in consulting, you just kind of like assume like, oh, this is kind of like what's getting done, and right, and like you have you have zero, like you said, you have zero appreciation for like actually getting this across the finish line. But it it's just kind of inherent to the work that you're doing. There, there's very little resistance, kind of having been on the other side now that I see. That's really cool. Um, no, thanks for sharing that. Two more kind of things I'm curious about. So what advice would you, and I ask everybody this, what advice would you give to someone that's currently in consulting and thinking about kind of making a move and you know, from your, your experience? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. I think that um, one is doing a little bit of soul searching around what are the things you really enjoy? about work, right? And just taking that that amount of time to understand, like, are you a details person? Is it process? Is it high level strategy? Do you want to implement anything, right? And I think understanding that earlier on can help guide you so that you're, you know, kind of leaning into work that, um, you know, kind of marries both your strengths and your passion areas, like the things that you actually like. That's one piece. I'd say also go down the rabbit holes, right? Talk to anyone and everyone, right? Of, you know, oh, wow, this person took a completely left turn and they're doing this. Go talk to them, right? Like you and I kind of talked about executive search, which I've always found interesting, right? And go down those rabbit holes, have those conversations, understand what, you know, um, from, you know, that great consulting network that you have of people going off and doing these great things. Because um, it's the best way to understand and then match up against, you know, your own interests and see how you react to those things. Um, I think so those are the those are the two big things. Um, and then I would say, um, you know, the other piece is that I, I felt like it was so risky to leave consulting. I had to find the exact right home. But I think we'd all recognize people don't go to firms and they stay for the next 30 years, right? And everything, like you'll, you'll go somewhere. And even if you don't love it, you'll gain something valuable. And it's all about um, kind of adding to your toolkit, to your experiences. Um, and if you make a left turn that doesn't make sense, you can tell the story of like your comprehensive value that you bring and go back to consulting if you want or some other um, role that, that suits your interests more. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd say don't, don't be risk averse like I was. No, I think that especially on point two, right. It's like, I mean, talk to as many people as you possibly can. Cause and part of the reason that we're doing this podcast actually is so that 
you you see data and you understand kind of like okay here's my options after consulting but i don't think you truly really understand like kind of like what a career path is until you hear the story of the person and so i absolutely know what you mean by number two so thanks for sharing that all right last thing we're, we're building up a uh beyond consulting library. And so what book would you recommend that we, that that our listeners read if you have any? Yeah, I do. I have two. Um, The first is a book called Pivot by Jenny Blake. And I think it's just a great book for outlining. She's a former Googler, but it just outlines um, different exercises you can do to understand yourself better, right? Like your sources of energy, what you're passionate about. And I think it just asks it in a way that might uncover things that would be different than if you just sat down with a piece of paper by yourself, right? So that one's a favorite. Um, The other one um, is Work Smarter, Live Better by um, a man named Cyril Pepillon. And he works a lot with BCG partners and I think other consulting firms, but he did a talk for um, the BCG alumni group. And I, I loved it so much. I actually had him come and speak to the larger kind of strategy, innovation, marketing product team and probably roll it out further within Vescom. But it's a little Stephen Covey-like around effectiveness. How do you make sure that you're prioritizing the things that really matter and how do you push aside the rest to make room for the, for those things that are actually going to move the needle on, you know, kind of the, the goals and objectives and what you want to accomplish um, in your in your role? Oh, that's interesting. And, and, and I'm guessing it it gets into, you know, how, how work is a big part of of your life and how those two things are kind of like intermingled. Is that. I'm I'm probably oversimplifying it. Nope. I mean, it it does, but it's it's really like a method for doing things like triaging your emails. I mean, and this is true. He actually talks about creating room in your personal life, right, for the things that matter. So it's not just work, you know, and personal life, but you know, how do you make sure? And you know, it's kind of uh, tips, tricks, tactical strategies for just managing right that you know that influx of email and communications and texts and pings and calendar invites and all of that kind of good stuff so it's all about like you know effectiveness and and focusing on what really matters all right i I will definitely check that 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 one out um well anjali thank you so much for joining us um this is this has been fun um not only just to do the podcast but also just to kind of catch up um the um if if listeners are kind of interested in learning more about about vestcom um you know, do, do, is there kind of is there a place you would direct them? I, I don't imagine there's a lot of a lot of B two B retailers that are just you know on the edge of their seats right now. But uh, where would you direct them? Well, well, I will say we're always hiring too. So I will put in a plug for Vestcom at least on that side. But um, you can visit our website at vestcom.com. So V E S T. C-O-M, okay. And if, if you want, if you ever want to work for Anjali, just, just send me an email and I, and I can connect you. <laughs> so I'm hiring for a senior manager right now. So <laughs> put that plug in right now on the marketing side. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. See, you want to work for Anjali? Email her. All right. Well, thank you so much. And then for our listeners, if you want to be updated on future podcasts, make sure to subscribe either on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Google, and please rate the podcast that really helps us out. And if you want to find past episodes or learn more about the podcast, it's beyondconsulting.info. And if you want to get in touch with us at ECA, it's eca-partners.com. But look forward to speaking with everyone next week. Thanks so much, Anjali. Thank you. Thank you.